Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. Once again, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program celebrating over 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening. I'm Amrita Myers, and in today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. A large community campus event on violence against women of color has been scheduled for tomorrow, March 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. in the IMU Wittenberg Auditorium on the IU Bloomington campus. The name of the event is Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. An impressive list of speakers has been assembled with the headline presenter being Dr. Kali Gross, professor of African American Studies at Wesleyan University. Dr. Gross's research concentrates on black women's historical experiences in the United States criminal justice system. Her first book, Colored Amazons, Crime, Violence, and Black Women in the City of Brotherly Love, 1880-1910, from Duke University Press in 2006, received the John Hope Franklin Center Manuscript Prize in 2005 and the Letitia Woods Brown Memorial Book Prize from the Association of Black Women Historians in 2006. Her second book, Hannah Mary Tabbs and the Disembodied Torso, a tale of race, sex, and violence in America, was released on February the 3rd, 2016 by Oxford University Press. We are privileged to have Dr. Gross with us in the studio this evening for an overview of tomorrow's lecture, reception, and book signing, and we're also going to talk about the book. Dr. Gross, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. You might want to get Okay. So, Dr. Gross, do you want to start with some book talk, some discussion about tomorrow's Violent Intersections event? You know, we could start with the event if you want to, and then yeah. maybe we can transition, sure. you know, into the book. Okay, sure. Um, I'm really excited that you're here for a number of reasons, um, and I, I think our listeners are going to be excited to, to talk about this as well. Um, the event as a whole is going to look at you know different kinds of violence against different groups of women of color mm -hmm. and you're going to be focusing i know on state sanctioned violence um, yes. against black women sure. we also have um, one of the other members of the panel is evelyn smith mm -hmm. who works at our local domestic violence shelter middleway house Wonderful. and she's going to be looking at intimate partner violence and sexual assault at communities of uh, with communities of color women of color in the in the local area so she's going to kind of bring the story home for us okay and then we also have Asma Afsaruddin, who is a full professor in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at IU. And she's going to look at Islamophobia and hate crimes against Muslim women. We've been seeing a lot of that both before, but also on an increase since the election of women who are wearing the burqa, the hijab, or the mm -hmm. headscarf. So different, really different examinations of different groups of women, but collecti collectively sort of looking at how women of color are more vulnerable to mm -hmm. violence mm -hmm. because of the intersectionality of race and gender, Certainly. right? Which can also be then layered on and aggravated by sexuality, mm -hmm. by religion, right? And so maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to this particular subject matter, you know, in terms of tomorrow's talk and maybe give us a couple of highlights that our listeners might pique their interest and they might want to come out tomorrow night. Sure, sure. So one of the 
the so I'm a historian by training. My period is the late 19th or early 20th century. Um, and one of the things that I begin to notice is that within the country's sort of legal system, there's a way in which black womanhood gets mediated in the law that places black women specifically at a disadvantage with respect to both protection and punishment. And what I mean by that is the laws took form in a way that denigrated black women and basically placed them outside of protection. Mm. So early laws from the colonial period right on up through, you know, after the Civil War and emancipation, basically um, did not protect black women. So you had laws that had specific crimes to punish black men if they raped a white woman and white men if they raped a white woman. But there was no law to sort of criminalize any sort of rape or abuse of black women. And so those kinds yep. of statutes took form in a way that placed black women outside of protection. But at the same time, if black women stood up to defend themselves, they would end up being punished, right? A lot of times by the legal system that excluded them from protection in the first place. Mm -hmm. So as I was doing this research, I realized how much of that dynamic is still going on today right. and still impacting black women with respect to you know, our inability to receive protection at the same time that we receive some of the harshest punishments. So in thinking about you know, the intersection with respect to black womanhood and, and you know, state violence, but also gendered violence from the community, the case of Marissa Alexander is like a classic example of this <sighs> dynamic, yeah. right? You mm -hmm. have a woman who is you know, a, a survivor of battery, right? Intimate partner violence, has a restraining order, mm -hmm. right? Fires a warning shot in the same state that allowed George Zimmerman to walk. After right? murdering for Trayvon for Martin. Murdering Trayvon, right? Allows him to walk for this, but when a black woman who's a victim she of domestic violence, right, fires a, fires a warning shot, her initial sentence was 20 years. Yep. Right, so the same system that fails to protect her. Same prosecutor, too. Exactly, same prosecutor, exactly, right? The same, you know, is, is was, had her in the crosshairs and was ready to send her away, right? She'd just given birth to an infant, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, so that, so the dynamics that I studied in, in history were sort of shockingly still relevant and, and we just sort of almost a, a real path to where we are at now. So for me, this conversation that we're going to be having tomorrow, I think, is really important. And, and thank you for, for bringing us all together to have it, um, because it's also really pressing. I mean, we're in a critical mm -hmm. moment right now where so many aspects around racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, right? Mm -hmm. All of these issues are converging in a way that I think will place women of color and particularly black women in peril with respect to violence from the state, but also I think it'll make us vulnerable to other forms of violence within the community as well. When you uh, talk about the harsher punishment for black women and and the fact that the uh, law enforcement system was designed not to protect black women, mm -hmm. then you take a look at the response to a missing black female compared to that of a white female. Natalie Holloway, uh, what was the little girl name in, in Georgia? Uh, JonBenet Ramsey. Mm -hmm. um, the Amber Alert system, right. the response is, is like night and day when you're talking white versus, white versus black. So is this a continuation of that system that, that failed to, to protect black women? I believe it is. I mean, I think that it's deeply embedded in the country's founding, 
I mean, one of the things, you know, we have a, a, a good scholar, colleague, and friend, right? Khalil Muhammad, yes. right? He talks about the ways in which, you know, racism is sort of baked into the legal system in this country. And that's certainly true. And I think the intersectional sort of oppressions are baked in as well. So, you know, what it meant to sort of be a black woman in America took form through sort of these laws that mediated slavery, right? So that basically placed black women outside of protection, outside of any notions of femininity or womanhood, um, you know, scripted us as sort of violent and immoral and deviant uh, and unworthy of protection. Unless we were taking care of white children. Right, if we were the good, the good black folks, right? Then maybe, may, but even then, you know, if, if these women ran afoul of white supremacy, mm -hmm. you know, things, things would change pretty quickly, no? No, and I, I mean, this is, of course, Kali, you know, I mean, I, I do the 18th and 19th century. Mm -hmm. I do black women, and you know, I work on black women in the slave south. And when I talk to my students about the laws, the fact that black women um, were taxed on their persons, right? right? E either they had to pay a tax on their own bodies mm -hmm. if they were free, or their owners had to pay a tax on them if they were enslaved, mm -hmm. right? White women were never taxed on their persons, right? So from the very early years, even in colonial Virginia in the mid 1600s, you have a system being set up where black women are already being viewed as other, they, they're, I mean, as property, as different. Mm -hmm. Even before slavery is actually legalized and codified, we have those taxation laws on the books. And so this is a, this is a exactly. system that is 400 years old on this side of the water mm -hmm. that, already, that already says black women are property, they have to pay on themselves, they're a burden financially to their husbands, their, their fathers, right, if they're free. Um, and then when, the, when these sexual assault laws are created, like you've already mentioned, there is actually no such thing as the rape of a black woman on exactly. the legal books in any right. southern state. Mm -hmm. Any slave state does not consider rape of a black woman to even exist by law, mm -hmm. right? You can only sexually you can only be sexually assaulted if you're a, if you're a white woman. Even if you're a free black woman, no such thing. And if you're enslaved, it's actually considered trespassing on someone's private property, right? And I just want to say, in the colonial period, it's not just in the South, right? The laws <laughs> that I cite true. are in Pennsylvania. And you're right, right. And, New, and in so New York as well. Not, exactly. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's something that is deeply embedded in the country, in the nation. And I think folks have, have agitated and organized and done a lot to push back against that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we still see these imbalances every day. As you point out, responses to differences when black girls versus white girls go missing, when black women versus white women are harmed. I mean, you when know. When they report sexual assault or, or domestic exactly. violence. Right. I mean, it's just, you know. There are, the examples are numerous, right, and, and multifaceted at this point. You can do it through different history, you know, whatever historical period you want to look at, mm. through every region in the country. Um, well, there was yeah. a black woman just recently who called 911 because of a domestic, she was actually needing help because she was the victim of domestic violence. And the police arrived at the house and shot her. Right. I mean, and she had called for help because she was being battered. This is not, I mean, this is the, this is, you know, very similar to Yvette Smith, right? There's a domestic violence at her home in Texas in 2014, mm -hmm. right? The police show up. She's the one who shot and killed, yeah. right? So these patterns, these, these abuses, they are, 
they're historical, but they, they, they're, they're current in our own time, but they have this history that's Long. deeply embedded in the foundation of it, this country. It's cyclical, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find uh, something really interesting in, in the title, the event title, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. Now, we have the age of the internet, we have the industrial age, so Donald Trump's misogyny has its own age. <laughs> You know, is that, is that it, what you're saying? I think so. I mean, I, I didn't come up with the title, but I think uh-huh. it's I came brilliant. up with the title, William. Really so what, what, the, what okay, okay, the what exactly are, are, are you saying with, with that? Are, with the that main term. title, Violent Intersections, or the subtitle, or both? The subtitle. The subtitle, Women of Color in the Age of in Trump. The, what, what, what do you mean specifically by the age of Trump? When I actually first um, started to organize this event, as Dr. Gross can tell you, it was over a year ago that we originally talked about this. So that was before... Um, Trump was even the Republican nominee. Okay. And at that point, the event didn't have a title, but we knew that we wanted it to be something that focused on you know, violence against women and ways that we could start to counter those types of violence. We had, I had already talked to Middleway House about being in, involved. I had already talked to Dr. Gross. And we knew we wanted to focus on women of color and how their you know, intersectionality being, you know, women of co- being both women and people of color made their situations different from both white women and from men of color. That while we can see similarities in our lives to white women and to men of color, we're not exactly the same because our race and our gender combined means that we experience different things, right, from both black men or from white women, for example. Um, But as the Republican nomination heated up and as we moved into what I consider to be one of the most foul, vitriolic political campaigigns I have ever witnessed in my adult life. Agreed. Um, and there was constant discussion about the candidates' um, open sort of racism, misogyny, the way he spoke down about um, uh, immigrants, about Muslim people, about undocumented folks, about the disabled. I mean, there was almost no group he left untouched. Um, but what really shocked me was when there was, it was very openly discussed that, you know, that he had talked about grabbing women by their private parts um, and, and walked into like the beauty pageant dressing rooms when women were mm-hmm. unclothed and was, you know, really, really shameless in how he talked about women and their bodies and even objectifying his own daughters sexually, which was really, really disgusting to me. And that's when I began to think to myself, we have a presidential candidate who is so blatantly open about his disdain and disregard for women. And yet, there are all kinds of people all over the country ignoring that or making excuses for it, accepting it, and shoving it under the rug, including a lot of women themselves. And that is why when I finalized the title, when he was elected, I finalized the title for this event, I thought to myself, I had always known that it was gonna be something about intersectional violence. So sitting at the crossroads, violent intersections kind of made sense to me. But I came up with women of color in the age of Trump because I do think that the fact that we have elected a man who is so openly hostile to women and Mm -hmm. so misogynistic, he's not just sexist. There's a difference between sexism and misogyny, right? right. right? That that to me lends itself Mm -hmm. that we are actually entering a new era Mm -hmm. where we live in a country that's willing to ignore something so blatant as, I mean, he was actually going to, he was being charged by a woman for sexual assault. And those charges were hushed up, paid off, and dropped Mm -hmm. so that he could, you know, take the oath of office. 
when we live in that kind of country, I think it makes sense to subtitle this event Women of Color in the Age of Trump, because we have now entered into an age, I think, and Dr. Crows can, and ha can add on to this, where different things are happening and we have to therefore strategize and respond differently. No, I mean, I agree. I would just, I would echo that. I mean, right, you know, if we have someone in office who can speak that blatantly and, and sort of baldly yes. about misogyny, particularly about against rape. white women, right, then you know how how much more vulnerable black women and women of color in general are going to be gonna right be. black white women are usually the ones who are on the pedestal right yeah. if anybody's allowed to get sort of protection you know and and can count on some measure of safety this is the demographic so to have you know the highest office in the land now be occupied by someone who has this much sort of contempt loathing right for you know i don't think it bodes well for women of color so that's sort of on one part but the other piece for me where i feel that it is especially um, perilous for black women has to do with this whole sort of law and order bent mm. that he has purchased, right? This this never bodes well for black folk in general, right? We right. know that there's a, right. a whole lot of sort of racism and sort of profiling and all the other kinds of things that goes on when people sort of tend to take this tact. But the recent sort of indications from Jeff Sessions, right, particularly oh. about pulling back with respect to looking at civil rights violations mm -hmm. in prisons and in law enforcement offices. I think this is particularly perilous. Some of the, the rhetoric being thrown around with respect to wanting to sort of penalize protesters and the like. I mean, if you think about it, you have a number of black women who have played really central roles throughout sort of this movement for black lives, right? right? So whether or not it's sort of the, the three black queer women who help sort of coin this phrase black, black lives, lives matter, matter mm -hmm. to the boots on the ground, to folks who are sort of organizing a lot of these satellite places, black mm -hmm. women have played fundamental roles. So as they you, always have. As they always have, right? So if you have now this sort yeah. of, this shift, this, you know, sort of, sort of hardcore kind of criminalization of peaceful protesters and dissent, I think that that's going to leave this demographic that much more vulnerable mm -hmm. to being sort of, you know, criminalized. Um, and will continue this sort of long legacy of black women being disproportionately incarcerated in prison. For those of our listeners who are just joining us, we are in conversation with Dr. Kali Gross, professor of African-American studies at Wesleyan University, and we're talking about tomorrow night's campus community event called Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump, which will be held at the IU Wittenberger Auditorium from 6 to 8 p.m. tomorrow evening. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Gross about the vulnerability of women of color in this new era that we find ourselves living in, but particularly focusing on black women. Um, and we're also going to be talking uh, a little bit about her, her newest book that just came out um, last year. Um, but welcome to those who have just joined us. You know, you two touched on uh, a couple of things. One was the law and order aspect. And mm -hmm. that was, in fact, I think that was Jeff Sessions' first announcement that was that he was going to pull back on the uh, on civil investigators rights investigations. Mm -hmm. civil rights abuses. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned... Uh, penalizing protesters. Mm -hmm. And I think the third leg of that is that he wants to demonize the press. Agreed. Press mm -hmm. are an enemy of the people. Right. Mm -hmm. But he's getting he's getting more pushback on that than anything else because mm -hmm. bottom line, the press ain't having it. Right. The you know, New like, York Times and the Washington Post have been 
on it. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm I'm actually heartened by it because initially in those those first few weeks, it looked like people were starting to cave and kind of go yeah. along call with the some press of into the his office and basically yeah. giving them a finger wagging. You know, this they, you guy know, is yeah. a Fox News president. That's all to it. I yeah. mean, in this recent, uh, we have a First Amendment. The last time I checked, but hey, <laughs> duh. Uh, you know, but it's gotten to the point where even some of the Fox News pundits now have had some yeah. criticism, which After has been interesting. Napolitano, That's uh, when you know me. that things are getting interesting. It, yeah. It's so it's get definitely getting to a point where where things are getting pretty scary mm-hmm. um, in a number of respects. But I agree, right? The assault on the press is also this piece, again, about sort of silencing folks and I think really using the guise of protection, right, to effectively sort of erode civil rights um, and I think to make already vulnerable communities that much more vulnerable. You know, and we see it happening. It's happening on multiple fronts, right? Mm-hmm. That's why it's so difficult I know that for a while people felt like we were constantly like behind instead of being able to get ahead of things and really organize because every morning we would wake up and there was a new executive order. And so it was like today we're building a wall, tomorrow we're banning every you know all of these Muslim nations in terms of immigration and you know the next day it's oh we're dismantling the Department of Justice and you know no longer investigating uh, civil rights uh, civil rights abuses. And sort of you sort of feel like pummeled from every aspect and you literally don't know <laughs> where to begin. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. What I just had the chance, Kali, um, I don't know if you, have you ever met Ashley Woodard Henderson? She's the new executive director of the Highlander Folk School. No, no, I don't believe yeah. I have. Okay. She's the first black woman XO at, uh, of, the, of the Highlander Folk School. Wow. Right. In its in its 80 year history, <laughs> it's absolutely phenomenal. So I had a chance to meet her at a conference last month. And this is exactly right. What's happening is that black women, queer women, women of color who are on the ground, like you said, doing the work, are experiencing an incredible increase um, in vulnerability and hostility. The level of hate mail that Ashley is getting simply for being the first black female director of the Highlander Folk School is unbelievable, right? She's already doing a lot of hard boots on the ground organizing work with the Movement for Black Lives Mm -hmm. and other organizations around the country. Uh, But it's gotten to the point where women like her are having to actually hire security, right? Personal security because of death threats that are being made against them for what? Highlander folk. I mean, this is this is one right. of the most nonviolent right. groups and people you'll ever meet in your life. But the accusations of communism and terrorism are constantly being utilized against Black women, right? Mm-hmm. Who put themselves out there on the front lines of social justice work? Oh, definitely. I mean, and we know that our demographic is especially vulnerable. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that I don't know if we we've ever sort of talked about this or it's come up, but I've written a lot of blog pieces as well, right? So I'm a historian, but I talk a lot about, you know, current day issues um, that are impacting black women with respect to the criminal justice system and also um, police brutality and police accountability. And I've written a number of pieces at this point, but the one piece where I was shocked I received the most hate mail probably combined was when I wrote a piece in defense of the young woman who had been brutalized by the school resource officer in South Carolina. Carolina. That really sort of rocked me to my core because I thought, you know, I've written other 
pieces around sort of black women who have, you know, been the Ray Rice piece. Right. Ray Rice, you know, some the Daniel Holtz claw. Yeah. You know, serial rapists of black women from Oklahoma. And you've written I mean, for Huffington Post, right. a number of public right. I mean, venues. A lot of different spaces, for, yeah. certainly. Um, and so it, it, I was shocked that that piece in defense of, of black girls would be the one that would garner that level of hate and vitriol. And it really sort of saddened me. And mm. I was I was very... I was, yeah, I was just profoundly saddened by that. Well, let, let me ask you a question about that. Sure. Was that um, based on hatred towards black women or were people pissed off because they saw you attacking the integrity of a police officer, law enforcement, which which really uh, uh, infuriates a lot of people, too. Right. And, this is, and so this is my point. I, I've done that on many occasions. <laughs> and what I'm saying is that she received more hate this mail for protecting for standing in up defense for a, a of a child. black girl yeah. than I have. So I mean, I've talked about it with respect to the Sandra Bland case, oh, okay. right? Again, with you know Daniel, Daniel Holtzclaw and the rape of these women. In um, the case of Ayanna Stanley Jones, a seven year old who was shot mm-hmm. and killed, right, sleeping during a botched raid, sleeping in her grandma's house in yeah. Detroit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've written about a lot of these instances. So I was, and I always get a measure of you know of ugly male right this is not a shock but I was stunned at the sheer magnitude of the vitriol in defense of of black girls I actually thought that that would be the least sort of controversial like surely she's a child we in America can agree that a child who's sitting silently yes you know, d- being defiant, right? Not following should the not rules, be body certainly, slammed. but should not be body slammed to the point of sustaining a physical injury. Yeah. And the one young woman who had the courage to sort of stand up and be like, you know, this is yeah. not okay. She was criminalized too. Yep. You know, that young woman was my hero. You know, it's, mm. well, I'm proud of her that she had the courage to just sort of to see this child's humanity also. And, Instead and, of the male teacher in the room. Right. Right. So, you know, so this is but that piece mm-hmm. um, brought out the trolls. Kali, can I go back and ask you a question about something you said earlier, maybe follow up on it? And you said that that it was something, you know, that we're seeing not only an increase or that you fear not only that we're going to see an increase in um, the rise of, you know, sort of hate crimes and attacks against black women um, from outside the community. But you also talked about the increasing tensions potentially within the community. I wonder if I could just like maybe, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm phrasing it the right way, but I wonder if I could just push you to talk a little bit more about the internal to the community things. Because we were talking about that earlier today uh, too. So, one, all right. So, I mean, I definitely think that one of the, the ongoing sort of tensions within our community, because we know we have like all communities, right? We have tensions, we have fault lines, sure. right? These issues around how sort of prominent and how, what kind of leadership roles should black women actually take and occupy, mm. right? And one of the things we know, there's been this sort of history of black women sort of being demonized in some respects, right, for being sort of emasculating or loud or angry. All of these kinds of, you know, caricatures that um, have typically, you know, made us sort of seem, you know, have basically stereotyped us in a way that's really harmful and has actually sort of hurt black women, I think, Mm -hmm. to the point where we've modified our behavior, right? No black woman wants to be seen as angry or emasculating 
or threatening. Loud, aggressive. Right, loud or aggressive. And so one of the things that comes up a lot in the community when we talk about the fact that when black women are victims of police brutality, the response is not the same as when it's black men, mm. right? You have people sort of push back and say, well, if you, we know and you say that black women are the main ones who you know, organize these protests, why don't they do it, you know, on behalf of these other black women? Um, and I think, you know, I, I've given this a lot of thought. I actually think that black women are sort of afraid to organize on behalf of themselves, that in some respects, the only way that we can righteously protest or dissent now is in defense of black men, right? That this is the place where we can stand up publicly and express anger without sort of being, you know, caricatured as emasculating black men or being somehow unrighteously angry. So how do we, in this moment, in this age of Trump, as we're already, you know, sort of worried that the misogyny against women in general is only going to make black women that much more vulnerable, how do we, how do we reach out to like men in our communities, right? and make sure that as i mean a lot of people are talking about how women have to build alliances across race right and religious lines you know for us as women to network with other women and i think that's absolutely true but i also think that this is a moment where we need to see stronger bonds and alliances being built within our communities right so what are some of the things that we can do um, to like do? I mean, I'm asking you a big question, but <laughs> I know you've thought about it. I know we've all thought about it. What are some of the ways that we can like make sure that those so that increase in misogynistic behavior outside the community doesn't start to trend upwards inside our communities? I mean, I think it's both. I think you're right. I think one, we have a lot of brothers who are allies. Mm -hmm. and I think step up and, and are represented. I think that we need to have those voices sort of turn it up even more. Mm -hmm. I also think that for, for us as black women, I think that there are a lot of us who have to get past this fear about being sort of, you know, too controlling. Like we, we can't limit our defense of ourselves because we are concerned about how this stereotype is going to look mm. or be traumatized. And that's not a criticism of, of black women by any stretch. I mean, I think it shows sort of the trauma that we suffer and all the ways that we try to, to sort of, you know, be viewed as sort of first human beings, right, sentient human beings, but also as women who are sort of worthy of love, respect, and protection. protection. Right. And so, you know, to to find a way to raise and use our voice on behalf of our brothers. Yes. Mm -hmm. But also to be more effective and also raising it when we ourselves are also victims, too. I think that we are really great organizers mm -hmm. um, and do some phenomenal things. And as you mentioned, have done so historically throughout history. Um, that we need to find a way to continue to do that and to bring these other folks along, um, that mm. our lives matter. Well, yeah, and the, a way for, and I mean, it's not all brothers, right? I know plenty no. of black we men have who many are allies. absolutely um, strong allies, but a way to be able to reach um, a lot of those black men, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to say, what hurts black women hurts black people. Right, right. Just like if it hurts black men, it hurts black people. And so, you know, you, we, we have to be allied in this with one another. 
So um, <clears throat> before we pivot to the book, I just want to ask William's you been waiting to sure. talk about yeah, the book, and it's a great book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we do that, I just want to ask you a quick question about your sure. blog. Sure. Is there something that uh, people who people can subscribe to and receive periodic updates, or do you have to go out there and find it? And you know, usually, I, so I have been sort of blogging, and I write for the Huffington Post. I've mm -hmm. written for the Washington Post, BBC News. I have a blog on my personal page. I had turned it off because usually they get published in these other venues. But I think maybe I'll turn it back on mm -hmm. and start sort of resuming it because there have actually been a number of pieces that I've written that I've been really frustrated about that have been sort of rejected mm. by a lot of these venues. Um, okay. And that's my other frustration. And I think it's less to do about sort of quality or, or timeliness than that I wrote, I write primarily about black women's issues. Mm -hmm. And most of the time folks are not really that interested. So unless it has some other sort of hook that people think is important or, you know, sexy in some way, it doesn't always make it make the cut. Well, the hook is we're in the age of Trump. Well, so that might that might change the landscape a little bit. It changed the game. But um, <clears throat> getting back to your book, sure. you've actually written two books, right? Yes. But the one that I want to talk about is <laughs> Hannah Mary Tabs and the Disembodied Torso. Now, I had to go back and and figure out that that was not just a, a colorful metaphor. No, it is We're not. We're actually literally talking about a torso that's this been, is correct. you know, removed from the rest of the body. This is correct. So, all right, I will talk about the book, but I, I got to bring it, to, I have to use a present to take it back there. Please do. So, my you know, my research is that it's historical, but a lot of it is written with an eye on the present. So this book has many origins. And one of them was that I lived in Philadelphia during this moment where it was sort of like the murder capital of the United States. And I lived predominantly in the black community at a time where, you know, there were, there were a, a lot of that violence was certainly ravaging our community as well. Um, and I was interested in sort of how do we talk about sort of violence within the community in a way that's not about pathologizing black people or, you know, lo localizing it to us. You know, how do we do it with keeping people accountable? And so because of that and the nature of this case, which is this sort of intraracial love triangle, adultery, and that ended in a murder and dismemberment, um, it sort of seemed like an interesting wild kind of way to talk about sort of something we never talk about in history, but also too with some of these elements to speak to. So how, how does the community kind of deal with crimes like this when they occur? This so one had everything but the videotape. It, right? it had everything but the videotape. Every time I, I've stumbled across this case in, an, in a scrapbook at, uh, from Eastern State Penitentiary, the administrators sort of kept newspaper clippings about their most infamous prisoners, and I saw these headlines, right? Uh, you know, this case happened exactly when? 1887 in yeah. Philadelphia. I think, I think it's important for yes. our, reader, our right. listeners this to hear not, that it was right. 1887. It was a, a ghastly find, right? You know, a, a disembodied trunk. Mm -hmm. She actually killed a white guy, right? No. So they <laughs> thought that he was white. Okay. And that was why they really, the investigators sort of threw everything they got at it, right? And then they realized that it was actually 
a brother, but he was really light complexion. And that's the guy that's on the picture. No, no? that was her accomplice. <laughs> so it gets, better. it gets better, right? So <laughs> it was, you know, she she had been involved. She had an affair with this younger man who was a very light complexion black man. Things went wrong. Somehow or another, his headless, limbless torso mm. was found in a pond outside of the city. And when authorities first found it, they couldn't figure out if it was a white man, a black man. They debated if he was, you know, Spaniard. They didn't know. So they threw everything at it to sort of figure out, you know, wow. who this victim was. Darn the clock. Well, right. here's, here's the thing, folks. <laughs> we, unfortunately, are going to have to wrap up our interview with Dr. Gross. But if you come out tomorrow evening to the event... Um, you're not only going to have a chance to hear her give her full presentation about black women in the age of Trump and state-sanctioned violence, but we're also going to be having a book signing. Both of her books, Colored Amazons and Hannah Mary Tabs and the Disembodied Torso, are going to be on sale. You can purchase the book, meet Dr. Gross, and have her sign the book for you personally. So I would just really urge everybody to come out to the Wittenberger tomorrow between at 6 o'clock for the main event. Um, you'll get to hear some, you'll see a dance performance, poetry readings, you'll be able to listen to these wonderful presentations um, from Dr. Gross and others, and then you'll be able to meet Dr. Gross, buy her book, and get her to sign it. So, you know, come on out. Our thanks to Dr. Kali Gross, Professor of African American Studies at Wesleyan University and key presenter for tomorrow's community lecture entitled Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. This will be held from 6 to 8 p.m. in the IMU Wittenberger Auditorium on the IU Bloomington campus. There will also be a live webcast at broadcast.iu.edu. To learn more about Dr. Gross, visit www.collynicolegross.com. I was trying to figure it out if that was, if that was a, a <laughs> Thank word. Thank you so much for having me. This it has great. been our pleasure. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Thank you, Dr. Gross, for being with us tonight. Thank you. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel I stole a kiss at the turn of a mile My curiosity running wild Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Riding along in my automobile I was anxious to tell her the way I feel so I told her softly and sincere And she leaned and whispered in my ear Cuddling more and driving slow With no particular place to go
particular place to go. So we parked way out on the Kokomo. The night was young and the moon was gold. So we both decided to take a stroll. Can you imagine the way I felt? I couldn't unfasten a safety belt. Riding along in my calaboose. Still trying to get her belt to loose. All the way home I held a grudge for the safety belt that wouldn't budge. Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go. just heard the classic Riding Along in My Automobile by the legendary Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, the perpetual wild man of rock music who helped define its rebellious spirit in the 1950s and was the sly poet extraordinaire of songs about girls, cars, sc school, and even the quote, any old way you choose it, died March 18th at his home in St. Charles County, Missouri. He was 90 years old. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB news website at WFHB.org news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. It's time now to give you the latest, latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Amrita Myers. A lot of stories this week, but one that we wanted to focus on in particular was International Women's Day, which happened just a couple of weeks ago on March the 8th. Uh, and there's a really incredible article that came out called International Women's Day, I'm Here to Let You Know I'm Not Your Feminist, by China Dickerson, who's a black political strategist. And um, it's a fairly long piece, but the long and short of it is that, you know, Dickerson, like many other you know women, I would you know, say around the world, um, are here to say I'm not your feminist because most so-called feminists don't care about people who look like me. This is a line right from the article, right? Now we understand that the technical definition of feminism says that all sexes should be treated equally. Uh, the problem, however, is that within a lot of organizations, um, they have the mission of securing women's rights or bringing parity to industries where women are not at the table. But the voices of black women, Latinas, native women, Muslim women, transgender women, and lesbians continue to be muted and cast aside. Here's a couple of facts that she drops that I think are pretty important to consider. White women earn $17 per hour. 
Black women earn 13, Latinas earn $12 per hour. None of those compare, of course, to white men who make $21 an hour. But it's no coincidence that white women are outpacing other women of darker hues. So what are white women doing about it? Um, well, not a whole lot up until this point. Another fact, black people make up only 12% of the American population, but 35% of the people who are missing in the United States today are black, according to statistics from the FBI. So the rate of missing black persons <laughs> in 2013 was three times higher than the entire black population. But the question is, uh, do we actually see reports of these missing black folks being reported in the media? Uh, where are the millions of people marching at once regarding missing and abducted children of color? Apparently they're sitting at home because most of those affected are black and brown and not white. Dickerson has really pulled her facts together in this particular piece. Um, I could go on. She talks about the fact that black women are imprisoned at a rate of 109 per 100,000, while the rate for white women is only 53 per 100,000, right? This doesn't mean that black women commit twice the rate of crime as white women. It means that 69% of the people they, the FBI reports in 2013, that 69% of the people they arrested were white, but, and only 27% of the people they arrested were black. So the numbers don't lie, but what that means is that even though fewer, a fewer percentage of black people are being uh, arrested, more black people are being incarcerated. So where are the marches? Where, where's the you know, frustration? It's absolutely true that some whites have participated in protests against police brutality for Black Lives Matter, but there is no ongoing participation. The bottom line, she says, is that women won't win by just uplifting white women. Women win when all of us, regardless of race, economic status, etc., are lifted up. But that's not happening, which is why Dickerson says, I am not your feminist. Because she states, quote, I believe most white feminists perpetuate white, if not patriarchy, then definitely white supremacy. I'll be your feminist when you care about and act on behalf of more than just the people who make you feel comfortable, end quote. William, any thoughts on that particular piece? I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, she makes a lot of really valid points, right? For a long time, I mean, in the 60s when we had our women's rights movement, it actually fell apart because a lot of women of color and queer women walked out of the women's rights movement feeling like their voices weren't being heard. They also felt like they weren't being heard in a lot of traditional black civil rights organizations, which were often very patriarchal. So you have a situation where here we are in the tw you know 20 teens and we seem to see some of these same things rising up again where we have the rise of a new women's rights movement and yet is it still really just about white women's rights? You, know, you asked the question, what are white women doing uh, in response to the, to the pay disparities, right? She asked that in her okay. article. I was reading from it. So yeah. I'm wondering if we expect white women to do anything to respond to that. Well, they've responded apparently with creating a pay equity day, but it seems like they're more interested apparently in working towards pay equity for white women than for all women. And, and even that has to get past the white men. And I mean, they're making $17 an hour compared to 21 for white men, yeah. but black and Latino women are making 12 and $13 an hour comparatively speaking. That was interesting. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> I mean, the, the uh, statistics. Well, that was a very brief look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. 
um, you know, we, we took extra time with Dr. Gross today because we thought that was more important. So tune in again next week and you will hear more from us on the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. So send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Amrita Myers. I'm William Hosea, and you are listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. Could I want my jockey to play Roll over Beethoven I gotta hear it again today You know my temperature rising The jukebox blowing a fuse My heart beating rhythm And my soul keep a singing the blues Roll over Beethoven Tell Tchaikovsky the news I got the rockin' pneumonia I need a shot of rhythm and blues Caught the rolling off the writer sitting down at a rhythm review. I roll over Beethoven, they're rocking in two by two. Well, if you feel it and like it, go get your lover, then reel and rock it. Roll it over, then move on up. Just a trifle further, then reel and rock with one another. Roll over Beethoven, dig these rhythm and blues. She wiggle like a glowworm, dance like a spinning top. She got a crazy partner, you ought to see him reel and rock. Long as she got a dime, the music won't never stop. I roll over Beethoven, I roll over Beethoven, I roll over Beethoven, I roll over Beethoven. just heard We're a Winner, Roll Over Beethoven, another classic by the late legendary rock and roll crooner Chuck Berry. I didn't know he was a crooner. That's a that's a really old term, but yeah. Yeah, sure. but I kind of think of Sinatra, who definitely didn't do uh, someone rock who and does roll. more like like so, like slower melodic love songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. It's time to bring you the events of interest in the black community for Bring It On. I'm William Hosea, and I'm Amrita Myers. So let me kick this off with. A notice that the Housing Choice Voucher Program opened up on Tuesday, March the 14th, 2017. And you can sign up if you're interested at www.bhaindiana.net. Click on the blue Apply Now button under Need Housing Assistance, or you can access it directly at bhaindiana.net forward slash application dash portal. 
The Bloomington Housing Authority will accept online pre-applications for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, Section 8. Applications are only available electronically. You cannot go to the office and fill out paperwork. Only available electronically via the online application portal. The online portal and additional information, once again, is located at www.bhaindiana.net. And next up is the unveiling of a statue, um, or sorry, an, an unveiling of a state of Indiana historical marker uh, commemorating uh, the historic achievements of William Bill Garrett, which will take place on Saturday, April the 8th at 11 a.m. on the grounds of the Indiana University School of Public Health. Um, and the Public Health Building is at 1025 East 7th Street. It's the corner of 7th Street and North Forest Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana. Parking is available at the Indiana Memorial Union parking lot. And you are cordially invited to this event by IU Bloomington Provost Lauren Robel in honor of the legendary Bill Garrett. I think we have time for one more. The Commission on the Status of Children and Youth, formerly the Community and Family Resources Commission, the purpose of the commission shall be to promote connections in our community which empower, enhance, and nurture children and youth. The commission will access resources and information to make recommendations to people and organizations with authority to create and support systems that encourage healthy development of children and youth. The aims and goals of just a couple of them are to identify and assess needs, resources, and services relating to children and youth and to encourage collaboration between local agencies, schools, businesses, and individuals, to name a few. The Commission on the Status of Children and Youth holds meetings on the third Tuesday of each month at 5.30 p.m. So the next meeting will be in April at City Hall at Showers, 401 North Morden Street here in Bloomington in the Hooker Conference Room, Suite 245. For more information, contact Nancy Woolery Commission on the Status of Children and Youth Liaison at 812-349-3851 or WoolleryN at Bloomington.in.gov. And our last community calendar event is the one that you heard about earlier this evening, the campus and community event called Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. It's happening tomorrow evening, Tuesday, March the 21st, in the IMU Wittenberger Auditorium. The event begins at 6 p.m. Um, yours truly, Amrita Myers here, will be moderating the event, and you will hear presentations from Evelyn Smith, the Community Outreach Coordinator at Middleway House Incorporated, Dr. Asma Afsaruddin, who's a professor of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at IU here in Bloomington, and also from Dr. Kali N. Gross, who is on our show tonight, Professor of African American Studies at Wesleyan University. In addition, uh, you will see a dance performance that was choreographed by IU dance professor Dr. Nyama McCarthy-Brown, and you'll hear an original poem read by IU English professor Dr. Ross Gay. When the event finishes at 8 p.m., we'll move to a reception, 
um, and a book signing. Dr. Gross will be selling and signing her books tomorrow night um, after we finish at 8 o'clock. And there will also be an organizational justice fair where uh, roughly 28 organizations from the city and the campus will be tabling and you'll be able to learn about these organizations, sign up to volunteer, etc. So there's food, there's book signings, there's tabling fairs, there's all there's something for everybody tomorrow. So come on out to the Wittenberger and learn uh, and get your voice heard because there's going to be a Q&A session as well so that you can dialogue with the panelists about strategizing on how to make world uh, the world a little bit of a better place for, for women of different backgrounds. If you have an event or happening that the African-American community should know about, please send the information directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard about tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our thanks to Dr. Kali Gross, Professor of African American Studies at Wesleyan University and key presenter for tomorrow's community lecture entitled Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. Our show's executive producer tonight was Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nowlin. Our board engineering team consists of Floyd Hobson, Jim Thrasher, and Jim Thrasher. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Amrita Myers. I'm William Hosea, and be sure to tune in next Monday, March 27th at 6 p.m. for an insightful conversation with Crystal Talaferro, director of the IU Soul Review. All this and more on another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.